Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Crime Trends versus Statistics and Reality. After many years of reassuring declines, some crime rates soared nationwide during the COVID-19 pandemic. Homicides jumped about 30% in 2020 compared to the prior year, and violent assaults rose by more than 10% according to a number of different groups that track the data. These trends weren't geographically or politically specific. Residents in cities, suburbs, and rural areas all suffered through that shift. And it didn't matter if they lived in a city run by a Democrat or a Republican. More murders, the data showed, plagued every urban area. On the other hand, robberies, burglaries, and larcenies dropped during the pandemic's onset. As the pandemic wore on, murder rates and violent crime rates overall settled down. The numbers rose, but not nearly as sharply as they did early on. Another wrinkle. Crime statistics are subject to spotty methodology and reporting gaps, making it hard to rely on the data with absolute certainty. Public safety isn't a trivial topic, and there's no question that many Americans say they feel less safe on some streets than they once did, despite the fact that violent crime rates are well below where they were during the 1990s. So what was behind the pandemic surge in murders and assaults? And what lessons can residents and public officials draw from what happened? Joining us today to chat about all of this is Ames Grauert, a lawyer and expert on crime statistics at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU Law School. The Brennan Center is a nonprofit focused on a number of legal and public policy issues, including research into the sources of violent crime. Welcome, Ames. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So set the stage a little bit for us. First, tell us a little bit about the work you do at the Brennan Center and how the Brennan Center intersects with crime research and crime statistics. Absolutely. So our theory of criminal justice reform is that we can have a country that is both safer and fairer, that we can pass common sense criminal justice reform policies that lead to a justice system that is fairer to all who are impacted by it. That's including people who are victims of crime as well as people accused of crime. And that while doing so, we can also have a safer country as a whole. Part and parcel of that research is trying to understand what's actually happening when it comes to crime trends around the country. So around eight years ago, some colleagues, before I joined the Brennan Center actually, released a report called What Caused the Crime Decline? This is sort of the origin of this work, but it's also very much still relevant to the work we do today. Their thinking was, we need to understand the huge drop-off in crime rates that happened between 1991 and roughly 2014. Over that course of time, murder rates in the United States dropped by roughly half. Some sociologists call this the great crime decline. It's it's a rarely remarked upon, but incredibly important social phenomenon. So they set out to figure out, you know, why, what happened? They came to a couple conclusions, one of which is it's very difficult to, to unpack something that complicated. But a couple of their findings were that improving economic conditions partially helped explain drops in crime nationwide, and that incarceration was not as powerful of an explanation as some had expected. So that was the genesis of this work, an idea 
that we need to, you know, understand what's really happening with crime trends across the country. And that, you know, we continue to this day to monitor what's happening around the country, keep abreast of the very best research and contribute our own where we can. Well, and socioeconomic factors play into our understanding what happened during the pandemic, too. So let's get into that a little bit. What happened in the early stages of the pandemic, particularly 2020, that caused homicides and violent crimes to spike? Yeah, just to give you a bit of context, I know you touched on it at the top of the show, but the key statistics are we saw the national murder rate increase by about 30% year over year from 2019 to 2020. We saw assaults increase by around 10% or so. You know, that's a significant increase in violence. And I think much like we don't have a complete answer as to you know, why crime dropped so precipitously between you know, the early 1990s and today, we don't yet have and may not have for a long time a full accounting of what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. When my colleagues and I investigated this to try to figure out, you know, what could explain such a dramatic increase in violence concentrated in such a short period of time, we came to a couple explanations, but we've always been careful. And I just want to reemphasize to your listeners, too, that this isn't a full accounting. We're not saying, you know, these are the factors that 100% explain everything that happened since 2019. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but a couple of those factors were, number one, increasing access to firearms and increasing carrying and use of them. And I can go into that at greater length. It's really interesting. So surprise, surprise, more guns on the street produce more violence against other people. That's about right. I'm shocked to discover that. You know, so often we look for counterintuitive findings, but this just feels very intuitive. It's sometimes these sort of explanations that resonate with us. It's just common sense. There actually is research backing to it. And people can push back and say, you know, well, it's true that more guns doesn't always equal more crime. A lot of second and third guns are bought by collectors. But in the pandemic, we actually did see a sort of closer link, at least, between more guns, more crime. There had been years of a surge on guns on the streets that also corresponded with a drop in homicides and violent crimes. So even there, the link is not entirely direct, right? It's very complicated. Yeah. So one of the pandemic era statistics we look at is something that the ATF refers to as time to crime. What that means is when a gun is recovered from a crime scene, how long ago was it lawfully purchased? So it's sort of the time between when a gun enters the market legally and when it turns up at a crime scene. Time to crime actually dropped during the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. That suggests there's sort of a closer link between gun purchases and guns being used unlawfully. But frankly, this is an area where we need more research to understand better the link between gun purchases and gun violence. Were there other factors in addition to availability to firearms, access to firearms? Yes. Yeah, so this is a tough one. I think, you know, when you talk to some people they will give you a very strong case of this argument. And I'm going to give you the sort of middle way case of the argument. That is that the social disruption caused by the COVID-19 pandemic had some effect on crime trends and especially violent crime. This is a tough one because I don't know if we'll ever be able to fully quantify exactly how this relationship played out, what happened, what's the mechanism that explains the link between the onset of the pandemic and violent crime. We might not ever have a full understanding of that, but a couple of mechanisms that we're sort of thinking through are this. When we saw the pandemic begin, the government response was not immediately adequate and not immediately encouraging. So a lot of people and people that we talked to in communities affected by violence said that members of their community lost faith in the government, didn't believe that their institutions were there to keep them safe. At the same time, a lot of basic parts of the community fabric, like libraries, third places, so-called, where people can congregate after work or on the weekends, those shut down or inaccessible. Programs like community violence intervention initiatives, which are programs run by people at street level to help stop violence before it starts, 
those sorts of programs often have to be run face-to-face, and you can't do that during a respiratory pandemic. That's just not how it works. So all of these factors that sort of work together in the background almost to keep communities safe, all of them sort of fell apart at once. And it would almost be surprising if that had no effects. The question that we ask, and I think researchers need to continue to ask, is what sort of effect did it have? What was the magnitude of that effect? So it would all be under the umbrella of people freaked out. (laughs) It would be more under the umbrella of you know, once in a generation pandemic having untold, difficult to quantify, difficult to truly fully appreciate effects on the social fabric and the sort of informal ties that keep communities safe. Yeah, people certainly had existential dread. People were reaching out to connect to one another more, and it was uncertain what the pandemic's effects would be. It's interesting to me to contemplate that then another stage in thinking was lashing out against other people, you know, either with guns or hands. Yet another statistic in all of that, though, is interesting to me, is that auto thefts also jumped. So in addition to, you know, you had certain kinds of crime decline, and then you had homicides and assaults jump, but auto thefts jumped too. What Mm -hmm. are you thinking about that? That's a category to me that's sort of intriguing. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. One way to think about what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic is how does the onset of a major respiratory virus affect someone's opportunity to commit a type of crime. So retail thefts tended to drop during the COVID-19 pandemic because people simply weren't going to stores. But at the same time, you know, you might not have eyes on your car that you parked down the street a couple of weeks ago because you haven't left your house. That's one factor that might partially explain increasing motor vehicle thefts, but there are a couple others too. One, and this comes from a conversation I had with Jeff Asher, who's a fantastic analyst of crime trends. He pointed out that Motor vehicle thefts tend to go hand in hand with more serious forms of violence. So, you know, a car is stolen and then used in a drive-by shooting. So it's possible that, you know, you would see that type of offense increase alongside murder, which is what we, in fact, saw during the COVID-19 pandemic. More recently, there have been security vulnerabilities discovered in a couple of vehicle brands. And there have been videos. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. You're getting to the TikTok video (laughs) part of the argument. Excellent. Yeah, there's a social media video explaining how easy it is to short circuit the security defenses of some vehicles. Specifically Kias and Hyundais, I believe. I believe that's right. And I can't tell you that that explains, you know, 50% or whatever percent of the increase in motor vehicle thefts, but it's not trivial. I think that that sort of effect of not just opportunity, but means becoming more available might help explain the increase in those offenses as well. So all of the reasons you're giving for why the numbers jumped, both in these separate categories, which can be caused by unrelated factors, and then some of the ones that are caused by related factors, none of these are necessarily the reasons that captured the public's imagination as to why homicides and violent crime were rising in year one of COVID-19. Tell me about that. What were the reasons that many people latched on to for why this was happening? Yeah, that's the key question. One of the frustrating things about working on crime research and trying to understand the way the criminal justice system works is it's easier to disprove some theories than it is to prove them. That's because the data are very hard to come by sometimes. But when you have a concrete idea, sometimes you can gather the data you need to actually test the theory. And that's what my colleagues and I have done in some cases and researchers around the country have done in others. And I'll get to exactly what the data show in a minute. But one of the most popular theories about you know, why crime rose, especially in New York City, was bail reform. This was a major initiative enacted in 2020 that changed the way the state's pretrial release laws worked. So detention, bail were largely taken off the table for misdemeanors and some lower level felonies. People jumped to the conclusion very quickly that bail reform might explain rising crime in New York City. But when you really kick the tires of that data, it just it doesn't add up. For one, 
as you know, as we've been discussing, violent crime and murders rose around the country. It would be very odd indeed if bail reform in New York somehow powered a nationwide increase in violent crime. It just doesn't compute, really. Subsequent research has backed that up as well, and I'm happy to go into that too. Another point that people argued was that this might be a, quote, city phenomenon, that this is something that originates in nebulously defined, quote, blue city governance. I think this idea is sort of a holdover of the way crime used to look in this country. You know, if you go back to the 1990s, there were multiple thousands of murders in New York every year. The homicide rate in a city like New York was well above the national average. And I think people sort of came to expect that violent crime is a city problem. But fast forward 30 years down the line, that's not quite so true. New York City is one of the safest big cities in the country. Its murder rate is below the national average. So this idea that violent crime was caused by and primarily a problem of cities is also simply not true, but became a very prevalent narrative, especially during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the other theories that we've looked into and and others have really taken a, a lot of time to try to research is whether the inauguration of district attorneys who you know believe in criminal justice reform policies, the label you hear is, quote, progressive prosecutors, but I've talked to these people. They don't all subscribe to that label. They subscribe to the idea that they are elected district attorneys who believe in criminal justice reform policies. But one of the arguments against them has been that- While still wanting to enforce the law. Indeed, yes. They're elected district attorneys who believe in criminal justice reform as a means of making their community safer, not as a political point. So one of the arguments has been that these so-called progressive prosecutors have presided over a rise of crime and helped kick it off in their cities. And the data just don't support that. There's a really good study that was co-authored by Anna Harvey at NYU's Public Safety Lab that tried to find a relationship between progressive prosecutors and rising crime, and she couldn't do it. She just couldn't find any sort of relationship. More research is coming out on this now. That was a popular narrative, but it just hasn't held up. And then moreover, in successive years, in 2021 and 2022, the homicide rate dropped, the rate of violent crimes dropped. What changed? Do you have a handle on on what was behind that phenomenon? That's a question we're sitting with, too. I actually think it does suggest one point. So if you were, as we were, sitting in the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and wondering, you know, what's happening in the country? Why are we seeing crime rates increase so much? If you had a theory that part of this might be due to factors related to the COVID-19 pandemic, like social disorder, like the shuttering of key institutions that help keep communities safe, you might hypothesize that as the pandemic recedes, we might start to see murder rates go down. And that is, in fact, what we're now seeing. So I think it's a point of evidence that suggests, but doesn't conclusively prove, that much of the reason that we saw violence spike so much in the early years of the pandemic might be due to these factors related to the pandemic. And as the world sort of returns to normal, as businesses reopen, as people get back to their daily life, as community rhythms return, that sort of network of safety and invisible bonds that keep us safe sort of reestablishes itself. I don't have a complete answer for this question, but I think that's at least one theory worth thinking over. So the lesson to be drawn from that is stay away from guns during year one of any lockdown, (laughs) because that's when people are most likely to fire them. A question we think about, too, is sort of how to build resilience into communities and how do you build resilience into society as a whole? And trust. Absolutely. And trust. I think that's a really good way of putting it. There were some surprising things that we found when we looked into, you know, not just what caused crime to increase in 2020, but, you know, what solutions people were talking about. There's actually some research these days that Medicaid expansion, which we just saw go into place, and I believe it was North Carolina is actually associated with lower arrest rates and lower rates of recidivism in some cases. 
This suggests to me that as you build a society that you know has a stronger safety net and is more focused on taking care of people, you might help firm up that sort of invisible network that keeps us all safer. On that note, Ames, I'm going to take a quick break so we can hear from a sponsor, and then we will come back in to chat further about all of this. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We're back with Ames Grauert, and we're discussing murder and other crimes during the pandemic and after. Ames, we talked a little bit earlier about people citing the wrong factors for this spike in murder and violent assaults during the pandemic and what some of the real factors might have been. You know, we're, we're having this conversation in the context of the data is still recently fresh. The events are still relatively recent and no one knows for certain. But our goal is to try to really get at real cause and effect so we can get better solutions. How was the narrative around the crime spike during the COVID pandemic and after constructed? Mm. I'm interested in that from your perspective. How did that narrative come into the public consciousness? Because it's certainly different than some of what we just talked about earlier in terms of the factors that actually informed the spike. Yeah, that's a really good question and something I spend a lot of time thinking about. I'll do my best to give you as clear of an answer as I can, but it's a complicated subject. On the one hand, you know, I think when people see something like the COVID-19 pandemic and they see, you know, hard data showing what they're feeling, that violence is increasing, people naturally feel afraid and feel concerned for their safety and the safety of their loved ones. And those feelings are valid and important and we should respect that, number one. One temptation when these very reasonable fears arise, I think it's tempting for some to look for sort of easy explanations. It's tempting to say, this is a problem and here's the solution and that solution will work tomorrow. When people gravitate to those easy answers, those answers feel good, they might sound attractive, but they might be wrong. And more than that, they might actually end up doing more harm than good. So I think that's one factor impelling the narrative onward is you know, when crime rose, people looked for sort of a single factor answer. You know, Crime rose by 30% in 2020 because of X and insert into X, you know, bail reform, quote, blue cities, something like that. That answer might have a certain narrative and intuitive appeal. It just happens to be wrong. Another factor I think we've seen, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, is I think because of the way that crime trends in the country used to look, people are sort of primed to think of crime as a city issue rather than an American issue. And people are primed to believe that cities like New York are uniquely dangerous, when actually almost the opposite is true. Representative Jim Jordan hosted a you know, field hearing in New York City designed to highlight how crime in the city was increasing. It just happened to be at a time when murder trends in the city were actually declining sharply. And <laughs> the evidence for rising crime in New York City was simply nowhere to be found. You know, The city, like other places in the country, had experienced a crime spike during the pandemic. But by all accounts, that spike was in the process of reversing. These narratives, they have an intuitive appeal. It's up to you know, policymakers and other opinion leaders, like us, in fact, to talk through why those narratives might not actually be true and why there might be other solutions that can make us safer. A colleague of mine who I do some work with, Insha Rahman at the Beer Institute, she has a really interesting saying, I think, and something that I think about daily. 
she says, you know, if we focus on the wrong problems, we also focus on the wrong solutions. So if you lock yourself in a narrative where you think the reason that crime is up is because cities are doing something wrong and bail reform or progressive prosecutors, something like that, you might miss some other solution that has nothing to do with those, quote, problems and that could actually lead to safer communities down the line. And as I noted at the top of the show, suburbs and rural areas saw a very similar spike to what cities saw. So the idea, again, that cities themselves are unique kind of breeding grounds or petri dishes for violent crime is belied by reality in the data. That's exactly right. Having said that, Ames, about the similarities of suburbs and rural areas and cities, there is also reality at work here. However, there is no denying that city streets do, for a lot of people, feel less safe. A lot of small businesses have boarded up. There's less people walking around in the streets, particularly late at night. Homelessness has been on the rise in every big city, I think, or at least most of the big ones. Yeah. And I've visited a number of them since COVID began. And you just notice homeless people wandering in greater numbers in the past. And there is this perception that the streets aren't as safe, even if the data doesn't show us that. Let's talk about that a little bit, because that is a reality-based conclusion for a lot of folks. Absolutely, it is, yes. And when people have that impression, they're reacting to something real. I'm not one to discount people's experiences and fears about their community. I think one thing at work here is people see social disorder, people see hardship in their lives, such as an increasing number of people living on the streets, and they make a sort of intuitive connection between that and crime. But social disorder and crime are not necessarily one of the same. They might, in some cases, go hand in hand. But that might be one reason why we see a sort of a gap between the perceptions and realities around trends, especially in major offenses. These are real problems. I don't want to downplay it. Like I've seen the data on homelessness in Portland. I've seen the data on homelessness in California and New York. And you're right, it is up. But the solutions to those problems might lie outside the criminal justice system, or they might lie in other policy interventions, disconnected from the problem of crime in the United States. And the sense of menace that some people might feel from a homeless person doesn't necessarily translate into the homeless person whipping out a gun and shooting you or assaulting you. Right. But, uh, you know, people's fears about their safety and about seeing disorder in their community, I want to make sure that we take that seriously. And policymakers should. They should just be careful about what solutions we can offer to try to build healthier communities for everyone. Two of the other sort of marquee incidents that have, I think, also make people worried about cities are shoplifting waves. As we know from the data, most shoplifting is carried out by a small cohort, often acting in conjunction with one another. They're repeat offenders. Mm -hmm. Again, that doesn't take away from the fact that the shoplifting is occurring and it appears to be unstopped. Storefronts are shattered or people walk into a retail store and just sweep stuff off the shelves. Have you thought about shoplifting as just a category of sort of urban blight? Or maybe the data there, I don't actually know. Is the data similar Again, across the board, is shoplifting a problem also in suburbs and in rural areas as well? This is a challenging question, too, because there are a number of things that can explain trends in shoplifting. Different stores have different strategies or protocols for reporting shoplifting to the police. For example, a colleague who's a former prosecutor mentioned this to me. You know, if I go into a convenience store every day, one week, and steal, you know, $10 worth of property. Is it the store policy to report me the first time and every subsequent time? Is it the store policy to call the police only after the seventh and then report every incident? These sort of differences in how 
stores and store owners report shoplifting to police can sort of confound our understanding of the data. And it makes it very hard to understand precise trends in shoplifting around the country and individual cities. One thing does seem to be clear, though, and most data that we have does point to this, and that is that shoplifting has increased in some major cities. In New York City, the data seems very clear that shoplifting increased sharply in 2022 and that it actually increased year over year for, I think, going back more than a decade. So the problem is very real, even if we need better data to fully understand what's going on. And tell me, as a last category before we move on to other and grander things, or carjacking, mm. that has also seemed to have been on the rise in urban areas, particularly in places like Chicago, in very stark ways. You know, drivers yeah. are pulled over by another car, or as they're getting out of a car or into a car, they're essentially held up and their car is stolen. And that seems to be a more frequent and visible crime than it was a few years ago. That's right. And this is actually a tough crime for us to study as well. I feel like I'm saying that a lot, but, but <laughs> you can get an idea of how challenging the data can be sometimes. The reason is that until very recently, and I know we'll talk about this in more detail, carjacking was not broken out as a separate offense studied by the FBI. It was sort of rolled into robbery. So in many places, we don't really have an idea of year-to-year -year trends in carjacking. The data that we do have does show that it is increasing or increased in 2022. We also know from city reports, I think you mentioned Chicago. I'm not familiar with the data, but I'm sure you're right. But we know in Washington, D.C., carjackings definitely have increased. As to why, it's a tough question. I go back to something I mentioned earlier. There might be some correlation between types of motor vehicle theft and other more serious crimes, as in you steal a car, you carjack a car to be used in a more serious offense down the line. It could be that those types of offenses go hand in hand. And is there like a psychology of crime that when you see categories of crime as a resident mm. spike, whether it's murders or assaults, it leads you to believe that every kind of crime that could take place might take place and will also increase. And that sort of feeds on itself. And people can get into that space without necessarily finding easy ways to reverse the fears they're feeling. I think that's true. It goes to a sort of broader concept. I think people of all types like to see accountability and like to see people you know, face consequences for their actions. So if they see people committing crimes and facing no consequence for it, it leads them to draw broader conclusions about the health of society and the moral fabric of their communities. That might be one way that we see fears about one type of crime bleed over into another. Sort of an interesting thing, if you ask people what types of crime they're most worried about, it really depends on the community. Number one, when we saw violence rise in 2020, it was very, very uneven. The violence spiked more in New York City, for example, in neighborhoods that have always been poor, have always struggled with violence. So that increase might not have been as visible to other people. But often you see people are more worried in some cases about what we in the policy field might call relatively lower level offenses, as in not the most serious offenses known to law enforcement, but crimes like shoplifting, crimes like turnstile jumping, things like that. Those sort of crimes can definitely affect people's perception of safety. And this is a good moment to point out that it is our neighbors and fellow Americans at the lowest part of the socioeconomic ladder who experience the brunt of violent crime increases, particularly homicides and violent assaults. So within those statistics, they don't apply in a blanket and uniform way across our society. They really affect usually the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people the hardest. That's absolutely right. There's a complicated relationship between poverty and crime. But if you look at cities around the country, you tend to see violence and rising crime in 2020 clustered in communities that have suffered from other disadvantages. Those sort of inequalities have always existed. You, know, you go back years, you'll see the same sort of trends. They simply became more exaggerated, more pronounced during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Let's take another break, Ames, and we'll come right back. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We're back, and I'm having a conversation about crime and the COVID-19 pandemic with Ames Grauert. Ames, I think we have a data collection and data analysis problem around crime statistics that transcends politics <laughs> and disagreements, and maybe it even makes them worse from my perspective. But I, I was wondering what you thought of that. That's absolutely right. Someone we've worked with before, a law professor, John Pfaff, I'm going to borrow a point that he makes, and that is we have up-to-the-minute data on the economy, unemployment data, jobs created, et cetera. But when it comes to our data on crime, until very recently, we had to wait almost a year, nine to 10 full months, between the end of a year and the release of national crime data by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So to give you an example, if you wanted to see national crime data on 2019, you had to wait until late September 2020 for that data to come out. That's nowhere close to the real-time data that policymakers need to actually craft interventions and understand what's happening in their community relative to communities around the country. Now, to be sure, local data is much more up-to-date. I could pull up New York City's CompStat portal right now, and it would have data that's probably less than a week old. Depending on the day of the week, it might be you know, yesterday. But when we don't have national data or when we have delayed national data, it also has an effect on the narrative. So to give you an example, you know, you will hear policymakers talk about rising crime in major cities. Over the past month, I've heard many policymakers on the federal level talk about rising crime in major cities. And in every case, they're citing data from 2020. You know, that's three years ago. Why aren't they using more recent data? Why aren't they aware of more recent data? And the answer is not necessarily bad faith. The answer might be, in part, that we have such a delay between the year that we're interested in studying and when crime data actually come out, that it sort of takes a while for the public to understand and adjust to what those data show. There's sort of a lag time between our reality of national crime trends and our perception of what those trends actually look like. And it's actually gotten worse in the past couple of years due to a transition in the way the FBI calculates crime data, which I could talk to you about as well. Well, since you mentioned the FBI, my Bloomberg opinion colleague, Justin Fox, who loves to crunch and examine numbers around all sorts of things, has been particularly frustrated by the FBI's methodology. He recently wrote this about how the FBI collates data around four major crimes to analyze violent crime rates. And I'm quoting Justin here. To calculate violent crime rates, the FBI simply adds together the incidents of the four violent crimes, meaning the rate ends up being determined by the most common ones robbery, and especially aggravated assault. That's not great. What do you think of Justin's thoughts on that? Your colleague is absolutely right. To make the problem even more stark, when people talk about the overall crime rate, what they tend to be referring to is the incidences of the four violent offenses that Justin referred to, plus the three property crime offenses historically tracked by the FBI. So burglary, larceny, motor vehicle theft. But when you add all those together, Larceny is far and away the most common offense, overwhelming all of them. So when people talk about the, quote, crime rate, there's often a risk that you're really talking about the larceny rate with some other crimes thrown in there. <laughs> it's a very sort of blunt way of looking at crime trends. And skewed, statistically skewed. 
Yes, especially because we actually saw this phenomenon in the COVID-19 pandemic. Larcenies have fallen for starting in 1990, they fell every year until I think 2022. So you could look at quote overall crime data in 2020 and see a decline in crime rates 2019 to 2020. So you could hear people say, well, the murder rate is up and respond with, well, crime is down. And you're both right. But if you're discounting a 30% spike in murder by looking at larceny data, (laughs) you're just not doing apples and oranges yes apples apples and oranges oranges. you're not doing the real analysis the public needs that's part of the challenge of it so how do we get better data so we all have better confidence in what we're talking about so here i actually have some good news for you which i think we're all eager for at this time the fbi is in the process of a transition to something called the national incident-based reporting system so when that transition is done we will have two things number one we'll have a system that tracks a much wider array of offenses in much greater detail. So we won't just have data on larcenies. We'll have data on larceny-shoplifting, larceny-by-fraud, larceny-every variety of every variety of crime. And that's going to allow for much richer, more thoughtful analysis of crime trends year over year. And you can actually see that in some work already, because many cities have already adopted this new system. You can see that in some work by the Council on Criminal Justice, a great nonprofit organization. They put together an analysis of shoplifting trends across the country using NIBRS data, which is how people in my field refer to the National Incident-Based Crime Reporting System. And they had a much richer look at what's actually happening in shoplifting around the country. It was really interesting. Their finding was, you know, as we discussed, that it's a real problem in New York. But so number one, we'll have a you know richer analysis of what the data actually look like. Number two, we'll actually have more timely data. The FBI is in the process of rolling out quarterly reports. So rather than have to wait for September, October every year for your dose of national crime data, every quarter you should get a little more data on the national picture. That data will still have a lag time. It will still be fairly stale by the time you read it. But you won't have to wait a year. And I think that's a real improvement and should help policymakers come to better, more thoughtful, more timely conclusions about crime data. I can't give you unalloyed good news here, though, because although this new system is going to be fantastic when it's fully implemented, implementation is going better than it was a year ago, but it's not going great. That's because to switch over to the system, police departments, that is the agencies that report crime data up through their state to the federal government, have to rework their computer systems and their way of tracking crime data. And that takes time, that takes money, it's difficult to do, it takes staff, and many departments, through no fault of their own, don't have the ability to do that and haven't. Including some pretty big ones. Some very big ones, in fact. So Florida and Pennsylvania yes. remain big blind spots in the incident-based reporting system, as does New York City. Right. And you've mentioned now two different states and a city. How reliable is data comparing one state to another or one city to another when when you see these sort of comparisons about what's safe and what isn't, what's a crime-ridden place and what isn't? Yeah. Let me put it this way. You know, the FBI's role is they seek to standardize the data to the extent possible between cities so that you can make these comparisons insofar as they're possible to be made at all. But that can definitely be a little challenging, even with that standardization. The one data point that we sort of know is accurate and reflects you know, what is actually happening on the ground is murder because of the tragic nature of the fence. At the end of it, someone has lost their life, and that tends to be reported to many different authorities. So murder counts, murder rates tend to reflect the actual number of those offenses committed in a community. But 
The same might not be true of larceny. The same might not be true of burglary in all cases. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, I had my bike stolen in Brooklyn and I certainly never told the police that bike was gone. <laughs> so those sort of challenges in reporting rate also might have an issue, a way of confounding comparisons between jurisdictions. It's not impossible. Those comparisons are certainly meaningful, but they might not fully reflect facts on the ground. They might come close to it more. You mentioned murder again, and we started talking about murder in this happy episode we're having. And I wanted to ask you, given this spike in the homicide rate in 2020, and it's cooled down subsequently, but it's still higher than it had been, what aren't we doing Mm. about homicide and violent crimes that could address that more directly? That is the question. Two metrics that I've been thinking about, and I'm going to refer to the work of some other scholars in the process, are clearance rates and response times. So the clearance rate is, you can think of it very roughly as the rate at which police solve an offense. So it's the ratio of crimes in which an arrest has been made or in which an arrest is impossible to the number of crimes that are actually reported to them. So if you have four murders in a given year and you make an arrest in three of them, your clearance rate is 75%. Unfortunately, 75% would be an outlier clearance rate in many cities in the country. We've seen clearance rates below 50% in some major cities. And in Chicago one year, I think it was below 30%. That suggests that, you know, quite literally, people can get away with murder. And that's very dispiriting. That's horrifying. I think we need to figure out exactly what's happening and see if we can figure out a way to increase clearance rates so people who commit these most serious of offenses are actually brought to justice. That's one factor. Anna Harvey, a researcher who I mentioned before, has also put some thought into studying police response times, which in some jurisdictions can be quite high. And that also can lead to a feeling of impunity. You know, if by the time police show up, it's an hour later, it's much more difficult to solve that crime. So these are two statistics that feed into each other. But I don't want to talk exclusively about those two metrics. Another promising intervention we've seen is something called community violence intervention programs. These are models where people from the community build nonprofit organizations and employ people from the community to help stop violence before it starts. So a model that I've seen in Newark, New Jersey, which is quite near to me, you will see people who have experience in the criminal justice system spend time in their communities, hear what's happening, hear about nascent fights that might be brewing, hear about conflicts that might be brewing, and then find the people affected by those conflicts and you know, try to put a stop to it. Try to say, you know, I understand what you're going through, but violence is not the solution here. These sort of programs, when they work, they are very effective. Newark was one of very few cities that didn't see homicide rates increase appreciably in 2020, for example. But they're very hard to get right, and they typically require more money and more professionalization and more staff than they're ever given. So this is a promising option that I'm glad to say, here's another piece of good news, the Biden administration has actually taken a serious interest in promoting and investing in. Ames, I always like to ask guests what they've learned that is an aha or a new thing to them about the subject we're discussing and you're a longtime observer of crime trends. What did you learn watching the way the crime statistics took shape in the early parts of the pandemic and where they are now and the kind of public debate we had around all of that? That's a great question to think through. One thing I've learned is statistics don't always reflect people's experience. We actually see this in the economy as well, to bring it near to a topic that all of us care about. The data may show one thing, but people may feel another thing. So there's a real gap often between people's perceptions of safety and the actual data. And the reasons for that may be really complicated. They may be because, like we've discussed, the data don't quantify the offenses that people are actually worried about. But whatever the reason for that gap, we've just got to take people's perceptions seriously. And it is no answer to someone who's worried about their safety to say, 
well, technically crime is down. No, that's not an answer. That's not an answer that helps bring us to you know a safer, more just place. Ames, we're out of time. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Ames Groward is an expert on crime statistics and senior counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU Law School. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that the perception of crime can almost be as influential for people as the reality of crime itself and has to be taken into consideration when we're coming up with policies to address crime. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable and always lawful Anna Mazarakis and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.